0: Welcome to the 4th Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, a return guest to the podcast, Ben Smith, the editor of Semaphore and author of a new book called Traffic. This is episode 44. Ben's new book is called Traffic Genius, Rivalry and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. It came out this month tracking the history of internet traffic, from BuzzFeed to Huffington Post to Gawker and more. We've got a lot to get to with him, including the Steel dossier. We've got uh, some very different points of view on it, Dominion Fox News, BuzzFeed, State of the Media today. But we begin with the Vice Bankruptcy, the end of BuzzFeed News and MTV News. Thanks so much for doing this. Good to have you back. You're our um, third return guest to the Fourth Watch podcast. Um so wow. when we get to the it's
1: end. a great it's a great honor. I've probably worked three different places the three times we talked. So
0: um yeah, I think I I don't know. I, I actually was going back and I, I want to ask you later about your move, uh, which coincided with the pandemic from BuzzFeed to uh, The New York Times uh, on uh, not by design, but just sort of worked out that way, which is sort of interesting. But um, uh, all right. Well, let me start with this. I, I loved your book, um, Traffic. Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. Um, it is kind of totally in my wheelhouse. It's like my personal hobby is, is the media. And so maybe it's it was Phil Teller made for me. But I also, um, it, it's just such an interesting book about a, a, a period in time, um, which really continues almost to this day. Maybe it's the end of that that era now. Um, I also am fascinated by Gawker, Nick Denton. I'd love to see him kind of featured in it. So, uh, so all of that. But let me start with this. You put the book out a couple weeks ago now. I had a book come out a couple months ago, which I interviewed you for as well. Um, Tell me about the process of writing the book and seeing it out into the world. Let's start there.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was, I guess I had left BuzzFeed in 20, the beginning of 2020 and it, and maybe this was obviously sort of, it was the end of an era for me personally. I'd been there for eight years, but also did feel like the, some whole moment was coming to an end and. I couldn't totally articulate what it was, but I, but I, I was curious about, wait, what did, what did we all just live through? Like what happened? Um, and I'm much more kind of a reporter than I am like a thinker of deep thoughts, honestly. And so I I just thought it would be interesting to go back to, you know, to to essentially the period right before I kind of got into digital media. Like I was started blogging, you know, but really covering local politics in New York in 04. And I knew that kind of, there was stuff happening around me in terms of this new media that was Gawker, Huffington Post, later BuzzFeed. And then I went to work for BuzzFeed in 2012. But I, and then and heard all these stories about the early days, but it was never wasn't really there. And so I think for it was the interesting exercise for me in a way was to go and kind of figure out the origin story of all the stuff I'd spent the last 10 years doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How was what have you been surprised by anything in terms of the reception to it? Um, positive, negative?
1: Yeah, the Gawker people haven't been as mean as
0: I expected. Very surprising. I, we're going to get to that. I, the Gawker people have have. I don't know if they've changed, but the culture has changed, and I feel like they're. Uh, well, anyway, we'll get to it. Um, I, I think you're a deep thinker because I. One of the things. Look, we'll we'll disagree on certain things that we'll talk about here. steel dossier, you get into the book, which I think is a good place to to go. Um, but but I've always appreciated you um, being introspective and sort of. Uh, you know, it's it's a rare trait. I think these days, it's, it you didn't used to be. I feel like journalists. That's kind of the mo. As people are, they're sort of self critical and and they're not um, they're not trying to build a brand and be influencers. But I do feel like you're know, maybe a throwback in that way of of really thinking deeply about the business and about the work. And, um, and you're saying like, I haven't
1: building a brand.
0: I think I no no I I think
1: you're it, failing good... to build a personal brand is what you're saying here. I that's the currency these days. It's a
0: different brand. It's a different brand because it's not um and it's, it's not anti-brand. a brand. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's one that is Take it. Take it. uh it's it. it's more interesting. Uh, I, I think it's it's uh it's something that I strive to do also is is you know, you have thoughts, you have ideas, but then you also can kind of you know think deeply about whether whether they're right or wrong, and, and kind of yeah. you know, dig into it. So um, let me start. Before we get kind of into the, into the meat of the book, I want to ask you about just some of the current media stories, which certainly relates to the book. Uh, BuzzFeed News, obviously, shutting down. I know you've talked about that over the last couple of weeks. Vice declaring bankruptcy doesn't look like it's going away. Um, maybe it's going to get saved and continue in some zombie form. MTV News shutting down another one just yeah. recently here, um, and it does feel you talk about an end of an era. I, I mean, certainly the the digital behemoths that were maybe going to compete with the legacy media uh, yeah. are either shuttering or or you know going to live on in some lesser form. So, what do you make of that? Why is it happening right now in this 2023 time frame? And and what does it pretend for what's going to happen maybe in the next few months to a year
1: um i mean i think it's actually two very different things
0: there you know there were
1: these media companies buzzfeed and vice probably the best the biggest brands that you know that made this big bet that that digital distribution and and particularly distribution on social media with more buzzfeed's bet would become not just great ways to reach lots of people but viable businesses and that now seems totally delusional and and maybe always was, but the, but just to sort of like, but I think people, and, and, it's, and I think you can look back and be like, how, what were people thinking investing hundreds of millions of dollars in these companies? Because of course, once, you know, once it hasn't worked out, it seems obvious that it never would. And maybe to some people it always was obvious, but what they were thinking, it's funny you mentioned MTV news because MTV news has been a you know it was a previous generations innovation it was yeah. it was it was it was something that was born in the cable era when cable was the internet cable was this new thing they'd laid these wires into the ground and suddenly you could get you know dozens of television channels instead of 3 and that was pretty revolutionary and these the people who built the who laid the wires had i would say in a very dull corporate way the vision to realize that they needed interesting news broadcasts and great entertainment and live sports on their on running through their pipes and that they would have to pay a lot of money for that and their businesses would be a lot less profitable because they'd be sharing the money with espn cnn fox mtv in particular and mtv news and 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 when and the big bet that did not pay off for digital media was that the internet in general, but particularly these platforms like Facebook, would be like the cable companies. They'd be competing against each other, against other forms of distribution. And then they'd know that to win that competition, they needed better content than other people. And they would eventually start to pay for it. Um, and that never happened. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that's, I mean, so that's the, in the biggest picture, why are these companies struggling? That's the answer. In the narrower picture, interest rates, you know, this is a top, this is interest rates are up. It's. I think it's probably going to be a pretty tough year in the advertising business, and so. And so, businesses that had been limping along, you know, have stayed, are, are unable to continue, keep going. I think it's probably true across the economy.
0: Yeah, yeah, it definitely feels, uh, you know, to me like we're at this inflection point where people are are going. We're we the end of the Trump era, although perhaps there's another Trump era to come. Um, and then we're post pandemic, and it's like let's figure out the plan now for for the new normal. Um, but uh, well, it, you know, it kind of also relates back to the book, which um w- was a really interesting chapter about Disney and kind of the sliding doors moment that uh, to think about uh <laughs> the way you describe uh, the meeting with Bob Iger and. Smoke Smoking weed and deciding whether you should do it with with Jonah Peretti and, and others uh, on the BuzzFeed side. Um, this this great uh, speech that Jonah gave that kind of was the deciding point to say no, we're not going to take the deal. Um, what what do you think would have changed in the media landscape? Not just for BuzzFeed. Obviously, a lot would have changed for BuzzFeed. Perhaps you know your own wallet uh, and bank account, but but. Not just for for that but but if that deal went through, what would that have said to the industry, and do you think that would have had longer ramifications for for kind of the digital business model?
1: That's a really interesting question. It was twenty fourteen I mean I think if Disney had acquired BuzzFeed, there probably would have been a rush to acquire other similar companies um, i don't think, i mean but I do think that if you look at these acquisitions. It's hard to think of successful ones of digital media companies that thrived, you know, under a big media parent. And there's a long history of them, you know, from like the Daily Candy and CNET of the first generation that were bought by big television companies, NBC and CBS, and are now either dead or half dead. Um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, there's been another wave of the Maxios being bought by Cox is sort of an interesting example. But I think it's, I think in a way, particularly like the, the reason that Disney was interested in BuzzFeed was not necessarily that it thought, or not primarily that it thought BuzzFeed was going to be a huge standalone business, as that it wanted to kind of sprinkle internet fairy dust across, across its other businesses, <laughs> particularly ABC News, yeah. actually.
0: Um with the Ben Sherwood side of which it. Which is I guess. a totally yeah.
1: reasonable thing to want to do. And I actually just noticed that like the Deadline Podcast is one of the most top rated podcasts in America. So I don't know, maybe they're figuring it out. But um but it was, you know, it was so early for us. Like we were just in the beginning of playing around. And I think it would have been sort of death for us as a news organization for sure. Um Although, I, I mean, I don't know. So, so I mean, in some ways, I mean, I, it was obviously in like a shareholder value sort of sense, and I guess as a shareholder, not the best decision ever. But I think in terms of what we're able to do for the next eight years, I don't really regret it.
0: Yeah, well, right. It, it, even in, in the book itself, it, it does, I think, kind of play both sides and say what, you know, it's not necessarily a clear win-loss, I, I would say. And, and you, you have like John Steinberg I mean, in the I, room.
1: It, it, I mean, it was, I think, a pretty, I mean, I think... I think when you look back, it I mean, it just in pure business terms, it was a catastrophic mistake.
0: To not take the deal. Yeah. Well, right, right. But but I guess, you know, from a from your perspective, um, as in your role, um, not just again, you know, what it what it would mean for as a shareholder, but but what that would mean for the business. But I also like So one of the things I tried to do going back and in researching for this um, is I tried to find this quote, which I swear exists, but I could not find it. So maybe I'm wrong. But uh, my my recollection is at one point, I believe it was Jonah described um, what he wanted from BuzzFeed and what he was building. And the the idea of people saying, well, how can you be, you know, these listicles about, you know, cat memes, but also, you know, news and winning and trying to get Pulitzers. Um, The thought was that, I believe that he was saying that, you know, look at CBS, for example, or look at like legacy media, you know, you've got CBS, it has 60 minutes, but it also has Survivor and CSI. I I don't know if this even exists, but that was my recollection of it. But do you think that that was kind of an ethos that was built in there? This idea of we can be everything to everyone in some capacity because these other legacy media outlets had that in in their past and we can sort of emulate that for the digital age.
1: Yeah, I think that was part of it. But the more specific prompt, in a way, was that there was this new thing in the early 2010s called the Facebook news feed. And people really liked it. Like, you could have silly entertainment and memes and and then also, um, um, you know, hard news stories and also pictures of your friend's kids all, all like, mixed in one feed. And, like, isn't that fun? And novel. And I think we were sort of looking at... And I think part of the reason Jonah hired me was that he was looking at that feed and there was starting to be more news in it as Facebook actually started to try to compete with Twitter, one of the great other errors of the age. Um but errors. But um but so what we were thinking was, oh, we want to be the content provider to this kind of feed, like across the spectrum. And news is part of that and entertainment and silly memes are part of that. And cool. Like that's and, and you know, and I think this is sort of the fatal thing. And people seem to really like it. That seems like that's the future of media. And I think that was true until politics got incredibly divisive. Yeah. At which point, people were like, "You know what? I will take my baby pictures without you screaming at me about Donald Trump." Thank you.
0: All right, let's talk Trump and Obama and how each were covered by the legacy and new media, uh, which which you write about in a lot of great chapter titles here. A chapter called "Side Boob," uh, which was Thank you. Thank you. yeah, <laughs> which is really about. Um, Two thousand eight, I guess is kind of the, the two thousand seven, two thousand eight, yeah. that time frame, um, which was looking at Huffington Post and how they were able to capture traffic. Uh and and that was based on a variety of things, you know, the side boobs and the and the the um you know pages based around subjects pac Manning this great concept of learning how Google upranks you if you if you link to a bunch of things, which is like the opposite of what the legacy media digital properties used to do. Um, so fascinating stuff. But also, obviously, in this, in this, you know, on a bigger scale, you talk about politics. Th- there was the Obama years and 2008, and and the way that that, as you describe it, the audience wanted. You found audience wanted cheerleading and affirmation, which came from this very different era of politics in 2008 and and what came next from the Obama years. Obviously, not everyone feels this way about Obama, but at the very least, from an audience perspective, that was kind of how it felt. And it feels obviously very different from what came next. Do you think that there's a scenario where that could have continued uh, if, you know, 50,000 votes went a different way in 2016?
1: No, I think, I think that the, 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 there was this kind of global, and it wasn't particularly an American story, rise of a new kind of right-wing populism that like swept the world and was really well adapted to social media. Like, I don't think social media caused it, and I don't think it caused social media, but, but a style of politics that was about, you know, fixing on these issues that elites had refused to talk about where there was a lot of anger and passion, like notably immigration in the US and elsewhere. Um, and also a style of politics that was sometimes about just like saying incredibly provocative stuff in order to start a fight, saying stuff that sounded racist, saying lying in order to pick a fight around what you'd said that was like, and that's like, you know, this kind of like punch you in the face style of conservative politics that in a moment when social media was prioritizing engagement, Like there's just nothing more engaging than you posting a meme, my calling you a racist, you saying, no, no, you're a racist, my then saying, no, you're a racist. And then Facebook's algorithm is like, wow, look at this great engagement. This is such a profound conversation these two men are having. Let's show it to every single person in the world. And so like, I think that, yeah, I think that there was this, and I think even if the algorithms had not been pushing it that aggressively, that Social media was very well. This, this, this Obama's style of politics, and actually Howard Dean's before him, and maybe Dean's even more so, had had worked very well on the internet, and, and partly because the internet was full of young people. Obama had dominated Facebook. Facebook had been a tool for his reelection, along with you know a, a social network he built called My <laughs> long forgotten. Um, and there was a sense that like, oh, the internet is for liberal young people, but ultimately, like. Obama wasn't gonna follow the sort of energy and the traffic all the way to like its logical conclusion in some ways, which is a more sort of Bernie Sanders style populism. Like he was gonna like follow it for a while and then like call Tim Geithner. Um <laughs> the and and Trump and Breitbart were just gonna say whatever got the most like we're just gonna say the provocative thing, we're gonna follow the energy of the, you know, of people on Facebook, wherever it led. Um And and I think in some ways that made them much better suited to these mediums. I think that's why they were ultimately the sort of winners of the 2010s. Yeah.
0: I mean, do you think that there was a sense that, I mean, whether whether maybe it's a chicken or egg thing, like did the cheerleading and affirmation that came from, okay, this seems to be working on social media, this is what the algorithm wants from the Obama years, then bring what came in 2015, 2016? You know, I'm a little resistant to the idea that like, Kiss, like the, any of these things had a
1: single factor, sort of easily untangled. And 50 years, somebody will write a book saying there were 17 factors and probably be right about it. Uh,
0: okay, let me go to another factor. Uh, this is one that I think was, for me, a big inflection point looking on the outside. In, 20, in mid-2015, I was really much not in the media world, um, but was just sort of an observer of it and trying to understand what was going on in newsrooms. Um, Huffington Post published an article... Uh, very, very short article called A Note About Our Coverage of Donald Trump's Campaign. This was in May of 2015. and I'm just going to read part of it here. It says, after watching and listening to Donald Trump since he announced his candidacy, we've decided we won't report on Trump's campaign as part of the Huffington Post political coverage. Instead, we will cover his campaign as part of our entertainment section. Our reason is simple. Trump's campaign is a sideshow. We won't take the bait. If you are interested in what the Donald has to say, you'll find it next to our stories on The Kardashians and The Bachelorette. And I read it at the time and I didn't totally understand it. It seemed like kind of this signaling opportunity, performative, but it also felt to me like this is something that a a news organization doesn't really do. Like this, we're going to do this. What did you make of that at the time? And then I'm going to ask you about your note, which came about seven months later.
1: Um, I mean, I thought it was a terror. I was a total mistake at the time. I mean, you know, like it was not because Because he was a really popular political figure who was likely to become president. And and the idea that it was, I mean, I think, you know, Maggie Haber and I wrote in 2012 about how close he got to running then. And I think people just didn't realize that he was serious in some basic way. Um, And didn't understand people. And particularly like New York journalists who had known him personally as kind of a loser and a clown in the 90s, didn't realize the extent to which the apprentice had totally transformed how he was seen nationally and that he had this image that was totally different from how he was seen by people who knew him in new york um, yeah i mean it was a, i mean i don't know i was i I was not a fan of that
0: at the time and
1: and and obviously it did not turn out to be an entertainment story.
0: It did not. No, in fact, um, it's interesting. On December of 2015, early December, um, you wrote a note, and it actually came almost to the day that Huffington Post reverted and uh, and and reversed their course on on that and started covering them in the political section. Um, You wrote that uh, a note to staff that was published, um, I think, by you, so it wasn't like leaked or anything. This was what you wanted. Leaking
1: my own stuff. It's the right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, You said that it's entirely fair to call Trump a mendacious racist as the politics team and others have been reported, reported clearly and aggressively um, among other things, basically saying, look, we are, I mean, this is my interpretation of it. um, We're not going to cover this candidate the same way we would cover any other candidate. Um, This is a
1: totally totally disagree with that. Okay. But with what you just said, I think, I mean, I think if a candidate lies a lot, does it seem like you shouldn't say that they're mendacious? Like I would think you would do that with any candidate. I would think you would do that
0: with any candidate. No? I, I would say every candidate lies a lot. Yeah, that's a dodge.
1: I mean, like Trump, no. Trump had a style of a style of politics that involves an end of life that had always involved lying more than other politicians. And yeah, in art of the deal, like this isn't really arguable. Like I mean, I think you can say, you know, what it was. It's a sort of a take him seriously not literally whatever like there's a lot of i'm not saying that this kind of right-wing populism is somehow illegitimate or people shouldn't have voted for him but it's not really debatable that he lied more than other politicians or in his life that he lies a lot like that's just love him or hate him it's a characteristic um so yeah so of course and and he had also been running a campaign that was based a lot on trading on racial stereotypes and sort of provoking okay. racial division. I mean, it just was sort of what he was up to. So that's what the, at the time. And so, so I know, so I actually think it wasn't that we were, we would cover him differently from any other candidates that we we're covering the same as any other candidate and not doing the sort of traditional newspaper thing of,
0: of sort of flattening everybody into the same space. So I, I think though this, this gets at the idea of like objectivity and, and the, the idea of what's the goal here. Um, mendacious. Racist. These are words that are conclusions. I would argue there there's subjectivity to it. Um, you know, if, if you want to say that the audience that that we need to make clear that this person lies a lot, you can say here's an ex-, you know various ways that this person is lying rather yeah, than but, and making I, a I, by the way I didn't statement. say I didn't say we are going to call like
1: I didn't say in that note that you're quoting from didn't say we're going to sort of like use the word racist on the website constantly because. It's we think that's important to 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 call people out. I don't think we did very often, actually. I don't, maybe never. Like it wasn't like a like. If you look at our coverage, we were focused on the reporting. Somebody had asked, like, "Is this accurate?" And I was like, "Yeah, that seems accurate." <laughs> but I, but I don't, but I actually also don't buy the notion that it's sort of like if the media and, and that note does not say it is the media's job to call people out and sort of like use adjectives to stand up to evil. I don't think that's particularly meaningful.
0: Coming up, we dig into the Steele dossier, Ben's personal involvement in putting it out with BuzzFeed, the CNN response to him, and how it all relates to Dominion and Fox News. That's going to be good. That is next. But first, I going to talk about CNN's Trump town hall last week. It was a huge ratings hit. It was pilloried by the hashtag resistance and the corporate media elite. Interestingly, even those at the network seemed disgusted by the, quote, platforming of the former president and likely GOP nominee. It's hard to see how America was served by the spectacle of lies that aired on CNN Wednesday evening, wrote Oliver Darcy in his Reliable Sources newsletter to cheers from Kara Swisher and others. Anderson Cooper went on his show Thursday night to deliver an embarrassing apology-like rant to his viewers, who he lamented were likely angry or upset to witness the act of journalism. It's instructive to internalize this because it gives a window into the reality about the anti-speech activism in our media today. There is an effort among our media elite in the 2016 hangover, where they feel personally guilty about helping to elect Trump, and in the 2020 counter-disinformation wave, to adopt a Cover your eyes and ears strategy of journalism. This serves no one—not the audience, of course, but also not the journalists themselves, who seem oblivious to the fact that this strategy is antithetical to the core tenets of their occupation. It's another reason no one trusts them. Now, I thought Trump was quintessential Trump Wednesday night, very much at home in his element. That was pretty much agreed upon by all corners of the internet. I also think CNN was well-served by the event, and Caitlin Collins did about as good a job as moderator as any current CNN employee could have. It was an obviously tough task, but she handled it competently, and while I would have liked the focus of the last half to be reflected in the unnecessary focus on January 6th and election fraud claims in the first half, it did end up making news on several fronts. But the entire event should be a wake-up call to Chris Licht and the bosses at CNN, I'm all for ombudsman at CNN, if that's what Oliver Darcy decides he wants to be and CNN accepts that. But the whiny obsequiousness to the Twitter crowd of Anderson Cooper, the punditry that clearly is not adapting to this new normal on CNN, there are impediments to turning the channel back into the news network of old that remain front and center. Having a town hall with Donald Trump is what every news network should strive to do. Get on board or go find a non-news network to work for. More with Ben coming up, but I want to tell you that the full Fourth Watch podcast is available exclusively to paid subscribers on Substack. Yes, Fourth Watch, independent in 2023 on Substack. Paid subscribers get a whole bunch of extra content from original deep dive columns called Rabbit Hole, the full podcasts each episode. Check it out for just 5 bucks a month, $50 a year at fourthwatch.media. And now, back to Ben Smith.
1: Sorry, I have like weird nuance views and everything, as you said.
0: Listen, I do too, and I appreciate it. Um, let's go into the weird, not nuanced views of the dossier, which you spent a lot of time on in the book. Um, stories that, I, I don't know, I, maybe I don't know the inside of it so much, but it feels like a lot of new stuff to me. I, I didn't realize like some of the tapper back and forth, the David Brock of it all. Um, so I want to kind of get into this just a little bit. Um, the the dossier chapter is fascinating. Uh, the decision obviously by you and BuzzFeed to publish the dossier, the Steel Dossier in full after a lot of back and forth, including, you know, reading a printout of it in your closet secretly. Uh, you know, it, it's it's obviously this was a decision that that weighed heavily I
1: kept on you. That I, I came out into the, into the light to read it.
0: <laughs> to... Okay, I don't know. I, I had a picture of you in your closet so like, you know, your family wouldn't even know you're reading it. But okay, maybe that's that was in my mind. Uh that's the movie version of it. Uh David Brock came and uh and talked to you about this. This is the big, you know, Hillary Media Matters guy, which is uh which is fascinating. He wanted to get the word out as you write about a secret that was circulating among media and political elites, dossier of allegations about Donald Trump's ties to Russia. Uh even in the publication of it, you wrote it includes some clear errors uh the the idea that you dropped it. I know you've you've kind of weighed back and forth about it. You wrote about it uh in the book. you kind of even say you would publish it again, maybe to do some things differently. But as you look about about that, i I guess do you think that to me this had a mass like this was a big inflection point again in kind of how people think about Trump, but not just but but how the media covers him, how the media thinks about it. I think some of the fallout also is very unique to him. Do you recognize that the decision was as monumental as maybe even even you thought it was at the time, that it has become this big point in time that people will remember? So I guess I don't want to give myself too much credit. I think the dossier
1: was in fact a pretty important part of, part of the complicated story of Donald Trump and Russia and the democratic reaction to that and the FBI's conduct. Clearly, it was used as, I think, the Durham report sort of restated this week, kind of the predicate for the investigation. Right, um, But that's why we reported on it and published it, right? Like we didn't invent it and it was all, re- and by the time we published it, it was, I think the there was clearly in, say like in October when Harry Reid was writing letters to Comey saying, I know you have secret documents, you should share them. Um, you kind of argue about like, okay, is this a real thing or is this just like some random thing Harry Reid is talking about? Come January, when we published it, everybody in Washington had already seen it. Was talking about it. Was shaping their views of Donald Trump around it. It, it and then and then CNN reports that Comey has that, that was it Comey or Brennan had briefed it to I think, it was Comey, Comey, I think yeah. to Trump and to Obama, two presidents, and. And then furthermore, that it was a document making, from a credible source, making allegations the president had been compromised by the Russians. I think at that point that that is out there, it's actually not really a particularly complicated decision. But and I, I guess think had everybody else processed it for a little longer, they would have come to the same place. Like, we didn't invent it. It was, as a judge later found, obviously a serious part of, the, of a serious public document that was the object of news. And that's why we published it yeah I've thought i thought like, you could have done it differently we could have done it with more context i agree and wrote that but but i actually think the underlying debate is sort of
0: not serious Yeah, the, the you you talk a lot about gawker and the way gawker would just put these things out um but i it, it didn't seem to so okay uh there's, there's like the WikiLeaks argument, like it, you know, it, if WikiLeaks would have just put it out, right, that, that as they have with other things, but BuzzFeed is a different, you know, it's a news organization that would would have a different, you know, you would you would put it out. You did add context to it, but as you say, it kind of continued on beyond that. But like it wasn't a, I don't think the tone of it, as you put it out, was here's something that is false that a lot of people in the elite powers of po- politics and media are kind of obsessed with and are actually taking seriously. Like, aren't these people we, idiots? We, I mean, we
1: had tried to report it out and had been unable to stand up or knock down various, you know, the allegations in it, except for a couple kind of minor things that were clearly errors. But we'd sent reporters to Prague and to Moscow, like like other outlets. Like, it wasn't, and it and we weren't, you know, and we didn't know if it was true or was false. Later, Michael Cohen gave us his passport, which sort of seemed to indicate he had not been in Prague, and we published right. that. But, but I think that, I mean, honestly, I think that probably Probably many of your listeners and there are these sort of two incredibly simplistic narratives about Trump and Russia out there. One of which is he's a Russian agent, and the other of which is it was all a hoax, and they're both total nonsense. And nobody and that's that that is a fact that no one wants to hear or will want to hear for ten or fifteen years. And I've given up arguing with people about it, but um, that is the reality.
0: Well, it. Maybe it was all a hoax is not is not a fair representation. But I think but that. Wait, let me ask you. A,
1: let me ask you a question on the hoax thing. Okay. do You think the people peddling the dossier
0: knew how shoddy it was? Knew how bad steel sourcing was? uh so the actual people peddling it, David Brock, um or, yeah, for instance, or David Chris, brock or or not Christopher Steele? He obviously no. Who was the guy all, at that like, like, California thing? Of,
1: um, Glenn, uh, the the fusion guys.
0: Yeah, like Simpson, right? Do now. we
1: think that, like, yeah, or um, that lawyer who Durham tried to convict and got acquitted? Yes, like it's sort right. of an underlying question of like, were they? No, did they look at Steele? Who, by the way, we looked at at the time and thought, huh, guy ran the Russian desk at British intelligence, and had been, and this is sort of a piece of the backstory that I think is in the book, but sort of. If you sort of want to know, like, why did people think he was a credible person, aside from having been a recently former senior British intelligence official, it was because he was very involved in the FIFA corruption investigations, which were a huge global story, he had been a yeah. great source to journalists on them. And that had been true. FIFA was very corrupt, and he was a good source on it. And so people were like, ah, seems like a serious person. And so, I, I mean, my own experience of it, having been in the middle of it, was not, we should take this as gospel, but also not, this is an unserious person and i think that's part of the story that you know it's easy in retrospect to say jesus his sources as it emerged you know were incredibly weak but that but it's but i don't i didn't get the sense and don't have not seen something particularly compelling to say that at the time as durham sort of tried to convict that lawyer on these people were paid hillary clinton operatives who knew it was false and but and they weren't actually interested in stopping Trump from being elected because this all plays out after the election or a lot of it. But after the election, then decided to launch a conspiracy against. Trump. I don't know. The whole thing doesn't make really well, sense to me. Yeah, I think no, they thought true.
0: it was. I think they thought it was true. I think they wanted to obviously stop him from getting elected, you know, were late. They and, started, then, they started and then wanted way. to they and then pushing, wanted yeah. to try, you know, get him impeached, uh, which he did and, and almost was, you know, removed. Um, but it just wasn't. Right, but I guess enough. I just
1: think like usually well, in politics when you see people saying really impassioned things and getting into huge fights and you think like this is some house of cards style black ops conspiracy, usually like, nah, we're all idiots. They're
0: wrong. They thought it was I, true. I, I completely agree with you. And and I'm gonna answer that in kind of a slight diversion, um bec between Thinking about that, no, no, but I let me also say that just to to throw this in there, I think the most compelling and interesting and telling aspect of what you wrote in that chapter was what Tapper was probably DM'd you. I don't know if he texted you or DM'd you uh, after publishing it, saying that you publishing the document, the actual source document that related to his story, makes the document less serious and credible, which is an incredible thing to admit when you've just put this out there and are trying to portray it as something that is serious and credible, which is what he did. No, I agree with you. And I think this is something in the context of like the Dominion text with Fox, I've been thinking a lot about. if Is it better that in 2020, the top executives at Fox, the top you know primetime hosts like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity knew that the Kraken bullshit was, was not real and didn't really say so on air at first, although Tucker did it about 11 days later, it uh, didn't stop people like you know Maria Bartram, The the ho- you know the executives didn't slow it down from the Lou Dobbses of the world. Is it better that those texts show that they they knew it was fake, or is it better if in 2016 if we saw the texts of Rachel Maddow, and I would say even people like the Jake Tappers of the world, smart people on the other side of the uh, on the other side of the aisle in the media world, still to this day believe that Russia hacked the election in 2016, that Trump was illegitimately elected, that, that the hoaxes that are like the Krakens of the world, in my view, are not real, but that they still believe it. And they believed it at the time. Is that better? than if the people, you know, behind the scenes at Fox didn't believe what happened in twenty twenty. And I would argue no. I don't I don't think it's better. I mean I know smart people to this day. That right, believe would you that rather tr-
1: would you rather would you rather your media personalities be lunatics or cynics? Is that the question? I think you would prefer lunatics given the choice, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. I don't think so. Or I cynical mean, liars. But, I don't know. But, is, but, that, is that is is that what you see as the alternatives? I, I I don't know. I mean, liars I think are hard. The cynics is, is fair. Um, people that uh, I, I'd rather people be based in reality. And I do think that Trump had a way of taking smart people that should have known better, like the Rachel Maddows of the world, like I would say even the Jake Tappers of the world, and making them believe things even and 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 go down a path of I would say conspiracy theories when when they should have known better and, and they and they should have put the brakes That's on it, it themselves.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's a sort of, It's. It, here's the thing. I think once, once it's, uh, it's so easy to say all these things in retrospect, just in, I would just say in general, and we should all be like reasonably humble about how obvious things are in retrospect. We should, yeah. Um yeah. And I want to actually, I'm not sure that, I, I think I, I, I'm not sure I agree with your interpretation of what Jake was saying. Like, I think he thought he had a big story and I had kind of stepped on it and I think it was more a sort of. I'm not sure he was making the kind of cosmic point that you think he was making. I think he was mad at me because I'd sort of muddied up his scoop um, in a like in a narrow competitive journalistic way. But but, but why
0: it, did that muddy up the scoop? That's that's. I'm not
1: sure, and you'd have to ask him. But I, I didn't quite hear it the way you heard it. But okay. whatever. Um, All right. The, um, you know, but he'd probably just been in a long fight with his bosses about what do we do about this document? I'd like to publish the whole thing. You can't, and then like. And then you sort of reach the compromise with your standards department about exactly how far you can go. And then some jerk just goes and like does the thing that you had wanted to do. And that's yeah. annoying.
0: Yeah. And in, in fact, I, I should just say in my that's book,
1: sort of, that's sort of how I interpret it for what it's worth. I, 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 talked,
0: to, I, I talked to Kelly McEnany in my book, um, who was a contributor at CNN at the time and said essentially what you're saying, that that she was on set. They were all talking about the dossier and she was like, there's no way we're going to publish this, right? We're not going to even touch this. And then their story came out and then your story came out and it became this this, yeah, this so, thing.
1: So So let's sort of bracket that. But yeah, I mean, I think certainly Trump drove people nuts. I think you can, I mean, I think that also the sort of, I mean, it's and it's incredibly easy to sneer at people you already disagree with who are attacking the politician you like. But I don't think it, but I guess I as sort of a reporter who is covering this stuff, don't think it was weird. Don't think it was crazy to be like, why is Russia, in retrospect, ineffectually, launching social media campaigns to help Donald Trump. Like, that's pretty weird. Like WikiLeaks, which gets written out of this story because it doesn't quite fit anybody's narrative, but probably the most successful intelligence operation of recent decades, you know, engineered by the Russians to help Donald Trump. Like, why are they doing that? Well, like, what's the motive here? And like, why is he going around praising Putin? Like, what, what's that about? So it was like, there. that was, I think, a totally legitimate question, which the dossier was like too good an answer for. Like, too, you know, like, it was sort of like, and the ultimate answer was a bunch of different things one of them was this moscow real estate project that was not in the dossier but was an incredible scoop he was trying to build the tallest building in europe outside moscow like okay but, he had offered putin, michael he had michael cohen call up putin and offer him the penthouse like that's a good – that's actually a bet he thought he was going to lose the election. Like, there's an
0: explanation. But isn't um, that – but, but I mean, don't you think of that, that – what, what you've said about Trump earlier, which I totally agree with, this apprentice guy. I mean, I read The Art of the Deal. He's all talking about truthful hyperbole and he moving dirt around to try to make it look like he was building buildings. I mean, he was all obvious But How can it be both those things? How can he – I mean, shouldn't that be the answer? Right, this
1: is this incredible – right. I think generally when you when you think that you're on the tail of like a incredibly complex
0: plot that requires yes. –
1: dozens of people to keep secrets, usually it's not.
0: But once in a while it is. Um, okay, we can talk about this for another hour. Let me go real quick about um, a Gawker and and its place there. I, I love that you have Nick Denton as a main character, who sadly left the the spotlight. Um, I, I used to like everything Nick wrote when he rarely wrote. I, I would just consume. I just find him to be just a fascinating yeah. uh, person, and I wish he would come back uh, in some capacity because I think we need him in the in the uh, in the media landscape and the cultural conversation. But um, what do you think about how? The Gawker ethos has shifted. There, there was the whole like snark versus smarm, which you kind of touch on a little bit, the BuzzFeed versus the the Gawker vibe. Um, you have a chapter about girly Gawker and, and Jezebel, which is really fascinating. Um, Nick, you know, sort of thinking about his own, what he unleashed, uh, the shitty media men list is in there. So all this stuff, go read the book. Um, but I look at places like Defector, which is kind of the new Gawker. Obviously, the the Gawker that was relaunched, which was kind of Gawker, shut down. But that didn't really feel very Gawker. Defector maybe is the closest thing to it now. But you read it, or I read it, and I find that it is essentially like conformed to the current consensus orthodoxy. Uh, You know, they used to be the rebels to the establishment, and now they've become the establishment. Um, The counterculture has gone elsewhere. They are now the culture. What do you think happened there? Do you think I'm right in that sense? And 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 why has it shifted so so clearly?
1: Um. You know, I, I I I was subscribed to Defector for a while, but I think may have let it lapse, and I'm not, I don't want. I just don't have like a strong view on on the site. Um, the let's. I mean, I, you know, I, I guess I think it's a complicated story. Like the original Gawker ethos was this sort of like radical exposure, like this sense that like the media of the early two thousands was hypocritical and sort of delivering an airbrushed version of reality including literally in you know the way women were portrayed in, in glossy magazines and including figuratively in the way the iraq war got you know the coverage of the iraq war got screwed up and that their mission was to sort of say the hard truths that journalists would say in private but not in public um yeah. you know and that was a very ideological way to think about the news and worked for a while and particularly worked when they were outsiders throwing spitballs at these huge institutions and then, kind of stopped working as they became relatively powerful, and these institutions became relatively weak. And suddenly, it's less clear that I mean, you know, when when you're Liz Spires in two thousand and four, like infiltrating the Condé Nast cafeteria and poking fun at these sort of powerful media figures, that's one thing. You know, decade later, they, they did some story about some you know senior Condé exec who had some you know who had been. You know, doing stuff in his personal life that was embarrassing that seemed and that and that seemed like bullying. Yeah. Probably just because the power dynamics had shifted so much, partly. Um the um yeah, but and I also there was definitely, I mean, a shift with online culture from I wouldn't say from right to left, but from a kind of like I don't know, slacker nihilist Gen X politics toward the progressive politics of the 2010s. But I think that was more sort of a broader cultural shift. Certainly I look back at early Gawker and one of the things that I don't remember having been obviously part of the culture at the time is how sexist it sometimes was. Like in a way that I think even the conservative media now would be pretty freaked out by. Like it was a very different moment on the internet.
0: Gawker... We used to be like the cool kids, though. You know, I always used to when I go went to go to Gawker parties. They were like the cool people, and I can never, I can never do it because I they would get say, invite, that,
1: "I didn't get invited to the Gawker." Oh, party. you were there.
0: I, I saw you there.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I did. It was fun for me. It was actually one of the reasons it was fun to write the book was it was this ce- social. You know, it was a scene that I had been aware of but not but been, been off. You know, doing other stuff.
0: That's funny. Um, I, I just I, I just find like. Twitter wasn't really a thing when Gawker was like at its height. But if it was, they would be trending all the time, like as as the as the the negative, you know, the antagonist of the day because of writing something that would have upset the consensus on Twitter. And now they are essentially the people that would be pillaring the people that are writing the things that, that would get people upset on Twitter. That's that's
1: I think uh, Twitter sort of swallowed Gawker. It maybe it's the same thing you're saying, but that whole blogosphere got kind of got ingested by twitter and moved to twitter and and now and and the whole dynamic of there's this there's this kind of hypocritical out of touch establishment media and these little blogs poking fun at it kind of got inverted and suddenly there's this super powerful centralized social platform wreaking havoc in these cowed media institutions (laughs) and now who knows what's next
0: more with Ben, including the Fourth Watch lightning round on his favorite place in the world, advice on fatherhood, and much more available for paid subscribers on Fourth Watch on Substack. Go to fourthwatch.media to try it. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast. It's also a newsletter. Subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. Thanks so much to Ben Smith. That was fun. Go check out his book. It's, really, uh, it's a great read. Really interesting stuff in there. And uh, like I said, very introspective guy. If you like the music in this show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper, Super Duper Music on Instagram. Song is far from falling. Download it wherever you get your music and download, follow this show, the Fourth Watch Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.